Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Very, very good to be with you. For those that I haven't met, my name is Mike, as Vern mentioned. Uh, good morning to Battersea, good morning to Westside, streaming in this morning uh, via live YouTube link. What we, what we love to do is we just love to give them a wave to say hello. So can we just turn around, camera at the back, give Battersea and Westside a wave. Hello, guys. Morning. So good to all be uh, together. Um, love being able to share and preach from God's Word. So uh, this morning, is, it's my privilege, my privilege to do that. We are in a series called Signposts to Jesus. And I think there's good reason for this title. It's fairly difficult to say quickly, um, if I'm honest. But uh, we didn't pick it because it's easy to say. We pick it because we think there's good reason for that title, I think at least. A few weeks back, I referred to the role that signs play in our uh, lives Uh, We are surrounded by signs everywhere we turn, whether it's icons, whether it's the Apple logo, the Samsung logo, whatever logo you choose, there's there's signs, there's logos all around us. If you walk down the street, if you get in your car and drive anywhere, you're going to be confronted with a whole bunch of signs that tell you all sorts of things. Sometimes signs misfire, and sometimes they aren't working as they should, as you'll see from those particular examples. They give us the wrong kind of information, Uh, or they give us misleading information that we're not quite sure what to do with what is in front of us. But signs, when they work as they should, provide information quickly, which you need when you're driving at 60 miles an hour on the road and you need to know where the off-ramp is um, or when you're about to come to a turning circle. And all they indicate the direction of our destination, where we're supposed to be going. The purpose of a sign, when it works well, is to point beyond itself. So this is why we've called this series Signposts to Jesus. John has carefully selected seven signs in his gospel, the fourth gospel in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. And each of these signs points beyond itself to say something significant about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So signs, when they work well, point beyond themselves to say something about something significant. So, in fact, John hopes that the signs that he gives us, that he's carefully selected from all the ones that he could have selected, he's hoping that these will give us confidence that Jesus isn't simply just a good person or another particularly enlightened individual or person, but God's Messiah. This is how he describes his aim at the end of his gospel in in the 20th chapter, verse 31. He says, these signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So this is, if you will, his purpose statement for writing his entire gospel, carefully selecting these signs to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing in him, we might find life in his name. So Jesus is the Messiah, and through him we receive the life that is truly life. God's kind of life. 
And each sign that John has given us of the seven have slowly been building on one another, kind of like layer upon layer, providing insight after insight after insight into who Jesus is, revealing more of Jesus, the life-giving, life-bringing Messiah. So I've, I've got a little table. We all have a table, I think. Um, hopefully you will um, after seeing this one. Uh, of the signs and what they signify. So we've gone through five of these already in the previous weeks, if you can believe it. The first one, that Jesus turns water into wine, showing that he's the Lord of God's future feast. Second one, Jesus heals an official son, showing he's, he has authority over geography, time, and matter. The third sign, Jesus heals an invalid, showing that he is the mercy of God in action. Fourth sign, Jesus feeds at least 5,000 people with a small boy's packed lunch, showing that he alone satisfies humanity fully. The fifth sign, Jesus walks on water, showing that he is God, who has power over all other powers that may come against us. So this is what we've gone through so far, each giving us another glimpse into who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And today... I have the privilege of sharing on the sixth sign, the penultimate one, next week being the final one. You'll have to wait to hear what that's about. This week, we are talking about Jesus who gives sight to a man who's born blind, blind from birth. And here's the essence of what I think this sign points to. Jesus is God's life-giving Messiah through whom we truly see. Jesus is God's light-bringing Messiah through whom we truly see. So this is my last time speaking before Julia and I return uh, to South Africa, and it feels fairly fitting to preach on this today, uh, if I'm honest. It was almost 12 years ago to the weekend I did my first ever talk in big church. I'd done a whole bunch in youth services and youth contexts, and about 12 years ago, I stood up and did my first one ever, almost to, to the weekend. So it's, it's amazing timing from a timing point of view, but also from a point of view, just the message and the hope that we've carried while we've been here. The, the message and the hope that we've carried is, is keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what we've tried to do. That's what we've tried to encourage this community to do, V61 to do uh, across the board. And, and as I was reflecting on this timing and this message this weekend, I was uh, thinking again, uh, about the fact that I've been following Jesus for just over half my life, uh, just over 16 years. I'm not 16 years old. I'm 32. I've uh, been following him for 16 and a bit years, and Julia about the same amount of time. And I've been thinking about the fact that that's long enough to test a theory. That's long enough to test a theory. That's long enough to put something into practice and to see if it actually truly works. It's long enough to test Jesus' words out in your life to see if this thing actually makes sense, to lose your life and to find it, to die uh, is to live, to follow me is to pick up your cross and, and, and say yes to who I am and, and to do these things and to try them, to see what happens. And I think what I've realized in doing that is it's completely and utterly true. It actually works. It actually fits with how life is. That the gospel, following Jesus, keeping our eyes on him, is the widest possible framework for, for reality and provides the deepest possible hope. It has explanatory power, and it brings incredible purpose and meaning to our lives. And I've seen this. I've experienced this. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm excited to preach today because I, I want to say keep your eyes on Jesus. This whole talk is about keeping our eyes on Jesus, the one who helps us to see. So I want to encourage us. I want to exhort us in this last talk to do just that.
Is that okay? So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the text for today. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. It's not just a good idea. It's not just something that we fall into by mistake, but there is power in it. There is deep purpose and meaning in it. That as we follow Jesus, we find that it makes sense. We find that it brings hope. We find that it explains, that it encourages, that it heals, it sets us on the right way. And so, Lord, I ask today that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and that we would know you and see you and look to you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the text for today is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read that. It'll come up on the screen as well. And as I read, you can follow along there. So let's go. John chapter 9, uh, verse 1. As he walked along, Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg. Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. This is God's word to us this morning. So I want you to notice the kind of flow of events because I'm I'm not really going to make, usually I kind of have three very clear points that I follow. Uh, Today, I just want to kind of follow the flow of the text and, and see what comes up for us this morning. So just notice the flow. Jesus Uh, is walking along, he encounters a man born blind, sitting and begging. The disciples ask him a question, a theological question. Jesus then responds to that question, and after responding, performs a very dramatic healing miracle, which leads to various responses to the miracle from a whole bunch of people. So that's the kind of flow of of what's just happened. So there's a few things I want to say that, that follow that process we've just talked about. But first, a little bit of context to help us to situate ourselves uh, in this chapter in John's Gospel. We've just jumped in almost to the very center of John's Gospel, so we need to know what's happened before that makes sense of what we have just encountered. So the first thing to note is that there's a common theme that's running through chapters 7 to 9. There's something that's happening throughout all of these chapters together that if we don't know, we'll miss uh, the point of this chapter. So in these uh, three chapters, chapters 7, 8, and 9, Jesus is misunderstood by various people, and his word has been rejected. So in chapter 7, people are confused at Jesus, including his brother, chapter seven, his brothers, chapter 7, verse 5. In verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So his family had rejected him and were confused at who he was and why he was there. We see also the crowds are confused at Jesus in chapter 7. The religious leaders are confused. Everyone's coming up with different ideas about who he is, what he could be. Some think he is a demon. Some think he's got good motives. Other think he's got bad motives. No one's really sure what's going on. So chapter 7 is just one big bundle of confusion 
over who Jesus is. Then comes chapter 8. And in a lengthy debate with the Pharisees, Jesus makes a huge claim. He says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12. And he says, those who follow me will never walk in darkness again because they will have the light of life. So this is about willingness to see Jesus for who he really is. This is about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. Then we come to chapter 9, where the spiritual blindness of the world is pictured in the physical blindness of the man. Jesus heals him, and in contrast to the confusion of the crowds and the religious leaders, he also believes in Jesus. So he receives his physical sight, and he receives spiritual sight, what those so far had been lacking in the previous chapters. So here's the point. Jesus' healing miracle is evidence of his claim to be the light of the world. He has come to heal our spiritual blindness and cast out the darkness of Satan's rule. So the reformer Martin Bucer is a German theologian. He sums up what's going on, I think, in a really helpful way. He says, this chapter is a sermon in act and deed on the words, I am the light of the world. This chapter, chapter 9, is a sermon in act and deed on the words, I am the light of the world. Jesus is demonstrating in action what he has just claimed he is, the light of the world. So what we see is as Jesus moves away from this intense dispute with the religious leaders, uh, he comes across a man who's born blind. And this man is well known. He's well known to a lot of people because he sits and he begs, we see in, in those verses there regularly. That's his place that he goes because many people come through into the temple courts. Many people will see him and perhaps have pity on him and his condition. So he's well known to people of that area. The disciples walk past having known this man most likely, having come across him before, and his condition prompts a question that they ask Jesus. Here's the question, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? In essence, they're asking whose fault is the suffering of this man? Whose fault is it? As an aside, I was reading this and I, I found it quite painful to see this man's suffering used as a launch pad for theologizing. The disciples consider him to be an unsolved riddle, a kind of doctrinal conundrum rather than a person to be helped. I want to come back to that a little bit later. But before we judge the disciples too harshly, their question does have a context. To the ancient mind, there was no doubt that unusual suffering was probably caused by some serious personal sin. It's a kind of what goes around, comes around uh, way of thinking. Each person eventually gets what they deserve in the end. This person has acute suffering. They must have been something that they did or others did that has led to this in their lives. That was a fairly typical way of thinking. So this question isn't only unsettling for the disciples, but it's also unsettling for us. We have similar questions, I'm sure, if we think about this for long enough. Their question, and this question, touches on questions about God's character. What is God like? Is God the kind of God who brings suffering into people's lives because of what others have done or something wrong we may have done? It brings, uh, touches on questions about what reality. 
Is reality predetermined or do we have free will? I really do not have time uh, to get into determinism versus free will today. I was seriously tempted um, to do it. If you want to read more about that, and I highly recommend it, it's, it is fascinating as a theological uh, approach, engagement. Um, there's a book that I've read that I, I would recommend as a way into this conversation. It's called Four Views of, of Divine Providence. That's all I'm going to say about that. Because what's important for us this morning is this. The belief that suffering has to be because of wrongdoing is as old as time, but Jesus says it's an incorrect conclusion. Jesus says it's an incorrect conclusion. He says neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus denies that suffering must be either the result of ancestral, past life, or pre-birth choices, so something like karma, or willful sin, something like divine judgment. Neither karma nor divine judgment. And amazingly, Jesus, instead of treating this man as culpable for his own condition or theologizing about his co its cause, he intervenes and restores him. Notice he doesn't really answer the question, but he heals the man. He doesn't totally answer the question, but he heals the man. I think Jesus reminds us that theological debates must not stand in the way of God's mission. We can, we can stand around and we can talk about abstract things all day long if we wanted to and feel really good about the conclusions that we come to. But Jesus just gets involved and restores this man. He continues the mission of God. He chooses practical love and service over abstraction. I don't know the meaning you've given your suffering in your life. But I find Jesus' paradigm is incredibly, incredibly liberating. It is true that some suffering is because of personal sin. We do stupid things sometimes. Um, in looking back, hopefully we would be able to acknowledge that that does happen in our lives. We do things we regret. We do things that if we had had more wisdom or experience might have chosen otherwise. And that does lead to hardship and trouble in our lives. That is true. But it's not a necessary connection between personal sin and suffering. The connection is not necessarily there. Jesus is essentially saying we live in a sin-stained and fallen world. The condition of the world gives rise to suffering, but God can overrule it. God can step into that space and bring those works that he talks about and overrule the suffering that we find in ourselves or around us. He can do that. If he can turn something as seemingly out of control as the cross into the salvation of the world, he can turn our suffering into glory and turn it towards good. That is what we see here. His paradigm is completely liberating. We don't need to go over our entire lives to see what someone did that may have led to the suffering in our lives. We don't need to try and rack our brains to think of everything wrong we could have done to try and understand why we are struggling. We don't have to necessarily do that. We can trust Jesus to step in, though, and to turn it for good. So how does Jesus respond to the question about suffering? How does he respond? He says it's an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed, whether in healing, in joyful perseverance, or prayerfulness. Healing is not always what happens in these moments, but in this case, it was. It is what happened. 
And just in case we get the wrong idea of what I'm trying to say, I want to I quote F.F. F. Bruce, who helps us to get this very clearly. Bruce says, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be aspersion on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by the recovering of his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And others, seeing the work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. That's really powerful. I think it sums up what's going on there so, so well. Because this is exactly what Jesus does. He heals the man so that everyone might know that he is the light-bringing Messiah. He is the light of the world. So I want to ask two questions uh, as we come into uh, land in the next five minutes. I want, to, I want to think about how he healed this man, and I want to think about the significance uh, of this healing. So how, how did Jesus heal this man? Well, the truth is he did it really awkwardly and unconventionally. I wouldn't suggest you necessarily try this, uh, unless you feel the very specific leading of God, um, and even then ask someone else um, <laughs> if it's a good idea to do it. So he did it very awkwardly. He did it unconventionally. He spat on the ground. He mixed his spittle with the mud, and then he picked up the mud and put it on the eyes of this blind man. I really hope he asked the man if he could do this, but if he didn't, he's Jesus, so it's probably fine. And then he sends this man to wash in the pool of Siloam. And he comes back restored. He can see. Why does he do it like this? Honestly, I have no idea. I honestly don't know. But there's two possibilities that I've been thinking about that I think are, are really helpful um, as, a, as a way to think about what Jesus is doing, what he's trying to communicate about who he is. The first one is this. As God used the dust of the ground in the creation of humanity, Jesus does a work of creation through the dust and the mud for this one man. It's kind of like a creation miracle. Using the elements that God used in the Genesis 1 and 2 story to create humanity, he uses those same elements to recreate a part of this humanity that has been disordered through the sinful conditions of the world in which we live. It's like a creation miracle, and it, it, it points back to who the one was who used those elements to create. It was God. God used those elements to create the first human beings. Jesus is saying, if you would just think, you would see who I'm claiming to be. He's revealing his true identity. And the second possibility, these are just possibilities, because again, I don't really know why Jesus is doing this. Perhaps Jesus changed his methods of healing so that no one would make a formula out of it. I don't know. Jesus never really did the same thing twice. He kept doing different things. He kept people on their toes. Just when you thought you could pigeonhole Jesus and you could put him in a box, or you could start to think, I can tell him what to do because I've seen it before, he would do something that completely blew your paradigms. I mean, who would have thought of mixing spittle with mud and putting that on someone's eyes as a way to heal a person? No one but kind of the unconventional, creative Jesus. He wants to continually challenge us to see him and not the method. See, the power is in God, not the method. 
Don't become overly wedded to a certain method. Trust in God. Trust in God. And this is encouraging for us because we can see people who are particularly good at doing certain methods in their lives. But the reality is we might feel like we never master that method. Well, that's not the point. The point is to trust in the power of God. I think that is what possibly is going on here. Some kind of creation miracle that points to the identity of God and maybe a humbling insight into the fact that it's not the method, but it's God. And the result of all of that is that this man came back seeing. A man who had literally walked in darkness his entire life sees light for the first time. Imagine that. A man who has walked in darkness his entire life sees light, sees trees, sees people, sees facial expressions, sees Jesus for the first time. That is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And that leads to the significance of this healing. This miracle is dramatic. The man was born blind and everybody knew it. He sat in a very public space, begging regularly in the same context to receive, hopefully, help from people in his condition. Everyone knew his condition. It's dramatic. So the healing doubles as a kind of act of compassion and a dramatic sign pointing to Jesus' messianic identity. More miracles regarding blindness are recorded in the Gospels than any other miracle. Why? When Isaiah prophesied the Messiah's ministry would come, he said it would be uniquely marked by healing of sight. So here's a few verses for us to see this. Isaiah prophesying says, On that day, on the day of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall see. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. I will give you as a light to the nations. And then the one that particularly marks this church, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to release from, to bring release from darkness for the blind. This is one of the unique markings of the messianic ministry, of the God's anointed one who would come and bring in the kingdom of God, bring God's kingdom to earth. He would bring sight. Through him, people would see. So this is Jesus saying, I am he. And I can give you the light of life if you are willing. I am he. See, this man's life was radically changed. And this is what happens when we encounter Jesus. This is what happens when we encounter Jesus. Isaac Newton wrote all about it in his song, Amazing Grace. He uses actually words from this very miracle in John chapter 9, he says, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. This experience of seeing, as if it is for the first time, has been experienced by billions of people all over the world, all across history, from every culture, every tribe, every tongue. And the effect of it on the whole of our life is profound. And because I can't preach my last uh, talk here for a while without quoting C.S. Lewis, here's a C.S. Lewis quote. He puts it like this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, 
but because by it, I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. See, when we encounter the light of the world, we see the world in an entirely new light. It's that explanatory power that we're talking about. It's things that were once in darkness suddenly become light. The way that was, was covered in darkness suddenly opens up and is light and is brighter because Jesus, the light of the world, is leading the way. He's giving us eyes to see. Through him, we truly see. We have the light of life, if we are willing. So one of the major critiques that I hear about Christianity is that it narrows your life. It narrows your vision. Everything becomes smaller and restricting. My experience has been completely the opposite of that. Like Lewis said, by it I see everything else. I feel like everything else has opened up, not gotten smaller. Things have gotten bigger. Reality's got richer. The textures become more beautiful and real. There's so much more to see. There's so much more to experience with Jesus as the light of the world, as our light of life. Not smaller, but bigger. Not shrinking, but expanding because God has come in. and Light has come. I should stop there. But I do want to create space uh, to respond to this. It's a dramatic miracle. There's so much going on here. And of course, we can ask the question, well, isn't this just about physical healing? Well, of course it is. It's an act of compassion where Jesus physically heals a man who has suffered his entire life. This is something Jesus still can do today. We know that. And also points to his light-bringing capacity as Messiah. Through him we see. And so I want to create space for all of these different things that could be coming up this morning for us. Can I invite the, the band up here at Battersea and at, uh, well, at Balaam, at Battersea and Westside as well? And if you're able, can I ask you to stand with me as we, as we respond to this text, what Jesus has been doing and saying? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.